Well, good morning. I wanted to start off today with a quote. It says, you don't have to fear defeat if you believe it may reveal powers that you didn't know you possessed. Now, that isn't a biblical quote, but I think there's a lot of truth in it. Today's teaching is on defeat and how God does not want that to be an option for many of us. But honestly, we are feeling defeated. There's a track of land that I used as my exercise routine and found it every time I would try to conquer it, but it usually conquered me, but I would keep going back for more. My heart pounded harder than ever as I walked up the same hills I did every single day. But these series of hills are so intense. By the time you crest the top, you feel as if you have just run an all out sprint down the track as you did back in your glory days of your high school track career. Now being over a quarter of a century older and having a whole lot more aches and pains that streak through my body, my chest still feels the same and gasping for air is no different. You know the pain that makes you feel as though your lungs are bleeding from the inside out? My arms work desperately to pull myself up the ascent of the hills while my legs thrust through lunge after burning lunge to drive my body to the next level. Triumph is short-lived though, because the next descending hill only transports me to the next painstaking rise of another. It's this love-hate relationship I have with those rolling hills. The truth of the matter is that I love to hate them, but I love the workout they give me back in return. You can feel every sinful bite of caloric intake fall off your thighs while you try to master this beast of a terrain. Now, regardless of the time of year, I have found this to be the very passionate time of exercise and one of the most painful periods when it's just me and God and the buzzards that are perched in the trees above, that we duke out some of the hardest and most thought-provoking questions and answer time of prayer. There was one particularly hard time in my life where I was going through a desert experience that lasted for several weeks. It had been a time of heartache, frustration, and confusion. Many of you know that state of being. And not only that, but a time of confession and cleansing, which I might add is also very painful. And a phase where the rest of the world spins by and often out of control, while you're feeling as though your head and heart are literally going to shatter if you don't get some relief in the near future. I repeatedly felt like Job and asked the same questions that he did to God. And the one that when all is lost, you really don't care what the answer is. And that is the thought, why was I born anyway? When so much is wrong and defeat is imminent, these are the type of questions and answers that really matter and are the ones that can only be presented to God and God alone to answer. I can remember when those very words came to the surface of my lips. What in the world are you doing, God? Why is all this happening? There was nothing catastrophic per se, but it just seemed as though life was unraveling in front of my very eyes. My job was terrible at the time and the stress level was at an all-time high. I was watching things increasingly grow worse day by day. Then I questioned the wrong that was being done in the workplace. Then my boss reprimanded me and brushed a very volatile situation under the rug that later turned out to be very dangerous and harmful to many others that should have been dealt with so that no one would have ever gotten hurt. But that didn't happen. Unfortunately, many were hurt, both physically and emotionally. 
My husband was feeling the ramifications after another major surgery and the loss of work as he once knew it. But our daughters were living their own young lives often as we do and the consequences not only fall on them, but fall on the rest of the family. It was like everyone was angry and bitter. Hostile people were everywhere. I looked inside my work, my family, and my friends. It seemed as if everyone's world was falling apart. I can remember thinking, Jesus, please just come back and put us all out of our misery. But that was not the solution or the prayer that he answered. Unfortunately, he has not returned yet to take us home to be in glory. So I waited for him to fight the giants in my life. There were five simple words that rang over and over in my head after I prayed for him to relieve me of my headaches. The answer I received that day was far from what my pitiful self wanted to hear. It was just when I was cresting that infamous hill that lies outside my front lawn when I heard that still small voice, which cannot be discounted in any way. It was straight from heaven And this time it was loud. It was louder than my heartbeat and stronger than my lungs were pounding. God simply said, defeat is not an option. He knew I was at the end of my rope, literally. The testing had come and gone day in and day out. And sometimes it seemed as if the testing was done hour by hour. I was feeling the overwhelming desire to throw in the towel give up on my family, my marriage, my job, and even myself. I had had enough. And without one ounce of relief in sight, my only thought was to cash it all in and say, I'm finished. I remember after one particular test during that desert experience, I texted both my husband and best friend and said, I quit in all caps. It was shortly after those notorious words. God put me on the hill for his last two cents on the matter. Funny how we think we have it all figured out when God shows up and lets us know that you don't have a clue of what's going on and that he ultimately has the plan for your life. Even when you say or done, I'm quit. I wanted to quit so badly. I could taste it. All I wanted was to run away. I was tired of being everything for everybody, watching others live life selfishly. I was ready to have my own number pulled for this is my time now didn't matter where I went or what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be anywhere but there. I want to add just a small footnote here, though. This is a very dangerous place to be. If the opportunity presents itself while you are in a vulnerable position such as this, things can go extremely wrong, extremely fast. So be careful here. Remember, Satan roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour, which we found in 1 Peter 5.8. He preys upon the weak. And I was certainly weak at this point in time in my life. The key words here are seeking whom he can devour. Just like in a jungle, the lion waits for his optimum opportunity to pounce. It's usually the one at the end of the pack, the sick or the lame one. He doesn't go after the strongest in the group. He knows the weakest one is the easiest catch. Dr. Charles Stanley, one of my most favorite preachers, often cautions us about these moments in time and uses the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. It's a great advice to be on high alert when you are experiencing any or all of those attributes in your life. This is never a time to make a decision, especially a life-altering decision. 
There were more words that I would hear from God that day. And he said, look up, look up and see that I'm about to do a new thing. So often we're so connected with our media devices and our immediate focus that we miss all the great things that God is doing right in the midst of our battle. Just think how many times a day you look down to do something, be it at work, home or school. We are so far consumed with what is at hand, never lifting our eyes into the heavens where we should never look away from. I want to give you some homework this week for a really quick reality check. Take an inventory sometime for an entire day of what you're focusing on. Now, I know most of our day is consumed with our occupation, but even with that, we have seconds and sometimes moments when we can simply look up, look out, look around and whisper the words, where are you, Lord? What are you doing today? I would love to catch a glimpse of you, even for a second in time. I promise if you would take the time out of your schedule, God will take the time out of his to delight you with his presence. The words that say he delights himself over us and that he dances over you and me. Can you imagine that in Zephaniah 317 capturing that? I can hardly fathom that expression no matter how hard I try, but it's true. It's right there in his word. Read it for yourself. I know for some of you, you may also be facing a very dry and restless desert season of your life. Maybe you've been unemployed for far too long and you were wishing that God would dance himself right over to your house and present you with some career opportunity in the near future to save your home from being foreclosed on. Or you have a sick loved one who just doesn't seem to get better. You're facing a giant of Goliath-sized proportion. You physically don't know if you can maintain the schedule of constant care for them. Your finances may not hold out any longer for the mounting prescriptions that seem to be written on a weekly basis. You no longer even grasp onto hope for the future because that hope has been tossed out with the overdue medical bills that fill your mailbox daily. You are not really seeing God dancing over you here either, you may say. Or the hopes of your 20-year marriage is long gone with the love of your life. It doesn't really matter about the scenario. You can fill in the blank yourself. All that matters is the emptiness you feel and the hopelessness that is ever present with each breath you take. I want to challenge you today, friend. Look up. God commands, I am about to do a new thing. Is there a new thing of your way of doing it? Probably not. But we have to believe that we serve a sovereign God who is all-knowing and who knows what's best for us. God is in the business of redemption. And just when you think all is lost, God often shows up in his finest moments. There's two stories I want to share with you today out of the Bible. Both are probably fairly familiar to you. First is the story of Abram that is found in Genesis 15. This is where he and God are having a conversation about not having an heir. Abram says, I am still childless, but God has promised to give him an heir. We know that he's well up in his years. Neither he or his wife, Sarah, are able to conceive children due to being well beyond their childbearing years. But God makes a covenant and then tells Abram in verse four to come outside of his tent and look up at the heavens and count the stars. God says, if you can count all the stars, then that will be the number of your offspring. Could you imagine this in your life today when something looks so impossible and you and God says, there is nothing about this that is impossible for me here. 
what would that look like for Abram? God had promised him so many offspring that he would not even be able to count them all as there would be as many as the stars are in the sky or the grains of sand on the seashore. Abram had to wait for God to fulfill his promise. Do you ever think that Abram was feeling defeated after 25 years at 100 years old? Looking at his own body and then looking at Sarah and saying, there's no way that this is ever going to happen. But here's how great God is, not only to Abram and Sarah, but to all of us as well. God often waits until our situation is impossible for us, and then he can make all things possible through him so that there is no confusion of who played the role in making it all come to pass. You see, Abram had to come out of the tent in which he thought he would make his conception of children even possible. It was like God was saying, step out of your box and all that you know, and I will show you what I will do. Not what you can do, but what I, your almighty God can do for you. I think we often hear from God. And then when it doesn't happen and we have to wait a long time, we get defeated and lose hope that God has walked out on us. And even when we claim the promise and believe him for it, it doesn't come to pass in our time frame. We take matters into our own hands. We get tired of waiting on God. I know none of us ever say that out loud, but it's true. As it was true for Abraham and Sarah as well. They too thought they would help God along by making an heir and having an offspring, but they had made a major mistake. Sarah offered up her maidservant to sleep with Abraham to bear him a child. Well, this backfired and was not God's plan. But in God fashion, he still comes in and makes things right on our behalf, even when we screw it all up. He finally did give him Isaac. Now, the second story most of you know is the story of David and Goliath. There was never a more defeated looking situation than with these two. First Samuel 17, four through seven tells us that Goliath was huge. He was nine and a half foot tall to be exact. Can you imagine his size? Some of the tallest NBA players today are still two whole foot shorter than what Goliath was. He wore armor that was over 200 pounds. That in and of itself was another large man. Not only was he a true giant, he was a big bully. He would go to the battle line and taunt Saul's army twice a day saying, choose a man to come and fight me. And if I defeat your man in battle, you will become my servant. And then after saying all that, he would have the audacity to say, I defy the ranks of Israel. He knew no one was bigger or stronger than he was. So he basically laughed in their face and said, bring it on because I'm going to crush whatever you bring me even an entire army if need be. And I believe he could. Saul approached Goliath in a way where defeat was certain. He faced him with fear and delay. Remember, he had watched Goliath run his mouth for 40 days, twice a day. And the Bible says they, meaning Saul's army, were terrified of him. The longer they delayed in taking on Goliath, the more intimidated they became. So he was their first thought in the morning and their last thought before they went to bed. I know what that's like too. Do you? Our giants tend to stalk us day and night. The same is true for us though. God tells us to take care of business. Get in and do what I've told you to and get out. Don't analyze it. Don't have 10 prayer meetings over it. Don't wait for three signs from heaven. If God tells you to do it, then do it 
even if you are afraid. Sometimes we just have to do it afraid. God doesn't tell us to do something and say, there will never be another option. Oftentimes it's just about pure obedience. But here's the twist to the story. We see the second character in the story. David, the little shepherd boy, comes on the scene and he has another idea of how to defeat this massive giant of an enemy. He takes on Goliath with whatever weapon he had. He was quick to go straight to the battle line. First Samuel 17, 48 says, Goliath moved closer to attack and David quickly ran out to meet him. Wow, I don't know about you that I would have ever run quickly to my giant. Have you? He surveyed the situation, saw the opportunity and took it. And the next morning, the Israelites woke up without a giant taunting them. David fought in a way that we are to fight when our giants present themselves to us. Fight with nothing to lose and nothing to prove. Oh, David knew that what was at stake when he took on Goliath and he knew with one wrong move, his life was over. And yes, he was probably even really scared walking up to the battle line to meet this giant. And I can imagine the closer he got to the line, the bigger the giant grew. But we too have to remember that David wasn't sent to fight this beast of a man in the beginning. No, he was originally sent by his father to check on his brothers who were soldiers in the army and deliver bread and cheese. David was not a soldier. He was a shepherd. And I think that is often how we find ourselves. We set out to live our own life. And while going about our own business, lo and behold, we are found face to face with a giant that we never saw coming while minding our own business. And we're not prepared. We don't know what to do. We need backup. We need God. Our giant isn't nearly 10 foot tall, brandishing huge body armor and weapons of mass destruction. It's worse. It's rejection and abandonment, depression and despair, or even disability or unemployment, affairs and infidelity. We must live our lives in the face of our own giants with victory as our goal on a daily basis and not that defeat could ever be an option. But don't you think those giants won't strut their stuff in front of you day in and day out, just like Goliath did. I want to share with you some practical ideas to live a life like David did while conquering your giants. Number one, use the weapon that God has given to you. Don't try to use someone else's weapons. There are dozens of self-help books that will give you a seven-step diagram on how to do just about anything, even living in victory. But I believe there is one weapon above all that works every time. It's trusting in the Lord. You see, David expressed his trust in the Lord four times before, during, and after his battle with Goliath. He trusted in God that he would give him the specific way to defeat this enemy. This was for David and David alone. I know what works for me to defeat my giants will not necessarily work for you. Oh, I could encourage you and tell you things that have worked for me. But I believe that God wants each of us to come to him and ask him for what he would have for each and every one of us to do. And he will show us our own unique plan. Number two, plan your battle of attack. Your weapons and your armor are for you and you alone. Although we all need to wear and suit up for battle and we do need to make a plan, God wants to custom fit you for your own battles. Saul offered up his armor to David, but the scripture says that Saul stood a head taller than David. 
So we know his armor would have been larger and more awkward and even more cumbersome for David to fight in. So David takes it off and fights with what God has given him, a simple slingshot and a few pebbles. This certainly doesn't sound like anything that's going to take out a giant of a man or any kind of successful military gear. But we have to remember that this is God's plan and he will equip you with just the right amount of weaponry you will ever need. And finally, while defeating your enemies, remember to celebrate your victories. Sometimes after we win, we no longer have the strength to stand and accept our trophy. Have you ever seen an Olympian not take the podium to receive their gold medal? Do you know the giants they face for years to even get the opportunity to someday make it to that podium? They would be crazy not to walk up with their head held high and receive the glory that was given for their great and valor display of athleticism. David also knew this was his time to be proud of his victory. He not only killed Goliath with the blow to the head with a rock and a slingshot, which would seem like a little boy's toy, but he cut off Goliath's head and carried it around as his trophy. In 1 Samuel 17, 51, we see all of this and how he carries it off around for everyone to see. It's okay when God defeats your enemy and he uses you to do it. It's okay to be proud that you serve an almighty and trusting God, that you know he has your back. And when you follow through with his plans, nothing is impossible. Not only did David cut off Goliath's head, he stood his weapons up all around his tent. So every morning when David woke up, he was reminded of how God delivered him from the hands of his enemy and how this would be a reminder that God will do it again for him in the future as well. There's a really interesting display of strength in the streets of New York City. Both are found on Fifth Avenue. One is the gigantic statue of Atlas in the fountain of the RCA building. He is a perfectly proportioned muscular man who is straining all of those muscles to carry the weight of the world upon his shoulders. And then you can go to the other side of Fifth Avenue to see the St. Patrick's Cathedral. And behind the altar, you will find a statue of Jesus as an eight or nine-year-old boy. And with no effort at all, he holds the world in the other hand. So many times we try to be like the statue of Atlas, this amazing strength of a person and bear the weight of the world on our shoulders. God says, I didn't intend for you to be under the weight of the world ever. As this brings me toward the end of our time together here today, I want to finish catching you up to speed with my own personal story where we first began the show. I'm excited to tell you that I have been redeemed from that very dark desert place I spoke about earlier. I recently met with a great author friend of mine who always tells it like it is. She said this, Shannon, you reek of redemption. At first, I was taken back at such strong language and really wasn't sure what to think. Was that a compliment or an insult? But as I traveled home that afternoon, I realized reeking wasn't such a bad thing. Because when you've been redeemed by Christ, you should always come away smelling, acting, and looking totally different. I guess that's what she saw in me. I bet Peter not only reeked of ocean water in the fish of the sea before the dawn began to rise that following morning after he walked on the water, but I bet more than anything, he too reeked of redemption. He was a different man when he stepped back on the boat with the disciples from a wave, not from a plank or a dock. He would never be the same again. 
This whole reeking of redemption came full circle with me a few weeks ago while I was out at the jail visiting with the female inmates. I was watching as all the ladies came in to take their seats and one particular woman began to cry before she sat down to meet with our time together. Now, crying is never unique as we talk at the jail about our personal struggles in life, but nothing had even been said. So I was taken back when she said loudly, I'm leaving. I don't cry. I'm a tough girl. Not quite those exact words, but we are on Christian radio and you know what I mean. I'll let you use your imagination. I said, what's wrong? I wish you would stay. I could tell she was hurting and I knew the enemy was at work in her. He certainly didn't want her to stay for Bible study. And then the words that came from her mouth that sat me back in my chair were amazing. They weren't the curse words I often hear when I visit. No, it was something completely different and something I never thought about someone would cry over. She said, because you smell good. I was floored. Out the door, she went to her cell. She is crying and left because I smelled good. Crazy, but true. What was interesting is that I was never near her in close proximity. I was in the same room, but it wasn't as if we were standing or sitting next to one another. It's as though I would like to say that my perfume smelled good enough to have someone ask what I was wearing, but never to make someone cry. See, I really didn't think it was my perfume at all. I think she saw Jesus in me. He was there with me and his presence filled the air. The word says that we should have an aroma of Christ on us. I hope and pray I always reek of Jesus. I know anything that anyone sees good in me is all him. But it's only when his aroma rubs off of him onto us. It's when we spend time with him. And I'm not talking about a five-minute devotion here and there. I'm talking about a long period of time, weeks, months, and possibly years, and yes, even times in the desert. Although I would never wish a desert experience on anyone, I would have to say the outcome is so, so sweet. I cannot describe the lonely hours and days that went by, but this I know, that as long as I kept my eyes on Jesus, defeat was never an option. As I close, finally, we know that by all looks of the imagination, Jesus was facing defeat when he was arrested back on Good Friday over 2000 years ago. By human standards, he was defeated when Judas betrayed him, when the Roman soldiers brought him before Pilate to be sentenced, and then finally when he was laid upon the cross to be killed and then laid to rest in a tomb. Satan believed that he had won and that he had been victorious and that he would reign over mankind. But isn't it just like God to let everything look like defeat is imminent? And then he shows up in all his glory and wins it for you and me, just like he did on Easter morning for Jesus. My prayer for you, friend, is whatever season you're going through at this very moment in time, you will begin to look up immediately and see the glory of God shining upon your face. That your giant will begin to fade in the shadows of an all-loving and all-knowing God who loves and cares for you beyond your wildest dreams and that you would feel the warmth of his embrace and that you too will reek of redemption and never know the sights and sounds of defeat because it is never an option with God. Hang in there. Your trophy awaits and you will be called to the podium very, very soon to accept your victory medal that Jesus himself has given to you personally. 
Because when God goes before you, who can ever be against you?